Thank you, Mark. Good morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, I'm Zach. I guess I already made myself known. Uh, morning, Kellen. Uh, I'm the associate minister here, and one of my responsibilities is overseeing our children's ministry, uh, which is my joy and privilege to do. Um, ben, as you have heard, is on vacation. Uh, he and Olivia and the boys are in the land of the mouse, um, and they will be there th- uh, through next Sunday. So these next two weeks, I'll be preaching, and Ben will be back for uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Uh, but thank you for being here. It's my honor and privilege uh, to teach God's Word, to bring God's Word to bear on our lives as a congregation, as a group of people united uh, to follow Jesus. All that being said, before I go any further this morning, I'd like to pray for our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, it can be uh, easy to be bitter, maybe not towards you, but uh, we look outside and it's the end of March and April is knocking on the door and we're getting pelted by hail and snow and all of these nasty things that we thought we left behind us in February. Um, but God, thank you for the seasons and, and just the, the beauty that we can see in, in the way the world works and, and how nature moves and um, that this is our Father's world and, and all those things. Lord, I pray for this particular group of people who are here this morning. Lord, we know we have lots of families and friends and loved ones traveling um, for spring break uh, with different students and School is being off this week. Um, Lord, we just pray that you would protect them wherever they go. Uh, and, and if they find themselves in a church this morning, that you would bless them and, and nurture them uh, in the, under the care of your people elsewhere, whether that's in Florida or wherever else people happen to vacation, I guess. Um, and God, I, I pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would use me as your instrument. Um, and that you would tune us all as, as your instruments to, to leave this place singing your praise and, and worshiping you in all the different ways you've gifted us. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Well, in 1996, a man by the name of Gary Kasparov played and defeated a computer in a six-game match of chess. You may be familiar with the story. It was covered, but it was also... 23 years ago, um, but, but Kasparov was considered and still is considered by many to be the greatest chess player of all time. And he won that match with a score of four games to two. The match was conducted in part as an attempt to demonstrate the increasing power of computers. Again, this was 1996. And for Kasparov, the match was a, an opportunity for him to demonstrate his own brilliance, his own mastery of chess. and frankly, the unmatchable brilliance of the human mind itself. And it's my understanding that the way chess players get smarter and better is by studying hundreds, if not thousands, of possible move combinations, positions. There are chess books that you can buy and read that offer diagrams and explanations for these moves and positions and strategies. And I've heard that as you get to higher levels of chess... The winners are the ones who have studied, frankly, the most and can therefore recall more combinations and positions and possibilities than their opponents. Which is why, when Kasparov accepted an invitation for a rematch 
a year later in 1997, he lost. The computer, known as Deep Blue, was able to compute some 200 million moves per second and could potentially see the game up to 40 moves in advance. As it turns out, according to Google, I'm not a chess player, but according to Google, an average chess game is about 40 moves. So hypothetically, this supercomputer could see a game from beginning to end. Kasparov put up a valiant effort. He even won some of the games, but he was ultimately defeated. And today, there's absolutely no contest between the world's best chess-playing computer and the world's best chess-playing humans. In fact, this morning, you might have just been reminded that there was once a time when humans were actually better than computers at chess. The computer has access to millions and millions of moves, and so it always knows which move will most likely lead to winning. Now, of course, a computer with this much power would be no good without the information to process. It needs that information in the first place. So somewhere along the way, the information was dumped into this computer, was added, entered in, to be sorted and explored later when the relevant situation called for it. Now, whether computers have changed how we think or we made computers to reflect a part of our own nature, this practice of dumping information into our heads takes place with us as well. While we might not be able to process 200 million possibilities per second, we still believe that given the right information, we will make the right move. In fact, like I was just saying about this master level chess, that's exactly what happens with them, right? They, they go, they dump this information, they study these books, they study diagrams, and they go and play, and they sort through all these images, all this information that they have as they're playing. So what do we do when we want to make the right moves, when we want to improve ourselves in this way or that? Right? We, we tend to feed that natural human tendency for self-improvement with information, with gobs and gobs of information. We, we want to make the right moves, whether that's in chess or school or work or chores or parenting, buying a home, buying a new car, navigating retirement, whatever it is, what do I need to know? What do I need to learn to do this thing correctly? So we search Google, we search YouTube, we may, we, we may even read a book. And thinking through it all, we're, we're processing it, working to convince ourselves of whatever makes the most sense. And this works really well for plenty of things. We gather information, we make a well-informed decision, and things go well for us. But there are situations where more information just doesn't seem to help. For example, we know we should eat better, but we keep finding ourselves at the drive-thru. Or we know we need to handle our money better, and somehow we keep making unplanned purchases at Target or on Amazon that, that don't really fit into our budgets anywhere. We know what we're doing, but we can't stop. So we search Google, we, we search YouTube for tips and tricks and hacks to fix our problem. We, we do all these things, rinse, wash, rinse, repeat. And that's how it works a lot of times in our Christian lives. We've been called to follow Jesus, and so we begin to gather information on what that looks like. We understand that if we are going to follow Jesus, we need to know where he's been and where he's going. So 
We listen to sermons. We read Christian books. We listen to Christian radio. Some of us even attend small groups where we talk about Christian ideas and doctrines. And then we go to work and we speak rudely with our coworker or about our coworker who's really made a mess of things, even though, even though we know that the Bible tells us that our speech should be filled with grace, that's Colossians 4, 6, and we're only supposed to say what's good for building others up, that's Ephesians 4, 29. Then we get home and we get upset, and, and frankly, I'm talking about myself on this one. Um, we lose our patience because we feel underappreciated Knowing that the Bible demands humility and considering others above ourselves. Philippians 2.3. Like I said, I know that one all too well. So just a quick look at reality uncovers that we aren't what we think. In fact, what we think or what we do often directly contradicts what we think. And since we're being honest, I'm being honest at least, we're probably not even thinking when we do a lot of things. Uh... If you wake up first thing in the morning and you look at your phone, you're probably not thinking about looking at your phone. It's just habit. When when Christian living is approached as merely a mental exercise, when we think Christianity is just a mental exercise, we are setting ourselves up for pain and discouragement. When Christian living is approached like deep blue playing chess, just pouring information into our minds so that when the time is right, we can uh, sort through our options and make the right, reasonable, logical choice, you're going to run up against an invisible wall. It's a wall separating what you know from what you do. You're not a computer. And this wall shows up in several places in the scripture. But this morning, I'm going to Focus, turn our attention to Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 119. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible uh, under one of the seats in front of you that you could take home if you were so inclined. Um, Unfortunately, we don't have time to read this psalm in its entirety together this morning. Uh, I did earlier this week just to see how long it would take to see if I could, and it took 11 minutes reading out loud, which is a lot of time in a... 30-ish minute sermon, so it's not happening. Um, The psalm is 22 stanzas. That's one stanza for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And a stanza is a paragraph for poetry. So there you have it. Um, Each stanza, in fact, your Bible might label them as Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, so on and so forth. That is the corresponding Hebrew letter. Um, And each stanza has exactly eight verses. So all 22 stanzas have exactly eight verses. And all eight of those verses start with that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So all the first eight verses start with the letter Aleph, which is similar to an A for us, and so on and so forth down through the alphabet. So you multiply that 22 by 8, you end up with 176 verses. And in these 176 verses, we read of God's law, God's testimonies. His ways, his precepts, his statutes, commandments, promises, his word, his appointment, and his rules. All these things related to God's word and God's law. Out of these 176 verses, only six of them don't obviously mention God's word. Instead, those six verses contain words like judge, faithfulness, judgments, justice, and pledge. All of which, if you 
take a little bit of time to think about it, pretty straightforwardly relate to God's word. God's word is the foundation of justice. God's word is the outworking of his faithfulness. And God's word is the way he makes promises to us. This is why Psalm 119 has been compared to a kaleidoscope. Using one topic, a list of several words, and the organization of the Hebrew alphabet, the psalmist, who we traditionally understand to be King David, crafted 176 lines of a song proclaiming the richness and glory of God's word. So we're going to turn our attention this morning briefly to uh, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll jump ahead just to get an idea, because like I said, we cannot read this psalm in its entirety this morning. So starting in verse 1, Psalm 119, verse 1, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. It's important to note that in these verses, blessed doesn't mean favored, as in God gives favors to those who walk in his ways. If you were here the past four weeks, any of the past four weeks, or you know anything about the story of Job, then you heard that this just isn't the case. Skin disease, the death of your children, and rotten friends aren't exactly favorable. And yet we know Job was blameless. He was righteous. He walked in the way of the Lord. And so we have to consider him blessed if we want to maintain the truthfulness of these verses here in Psalm 119. And we can. In certain contexts, blessed, all it means is happy or fulfilled or satisfied and not necessarily favored or privileged. The psalmist, David, isn't saying God will grant you three wishes if you follow his law. Instead, he's saying the happy life, the fulfilled life, the this, this satisfying life is found in the ways of the Lord. The word of the Lord is good. It shows how to, how to achieve that, how to achieve that satisfying, fulfilling life. But it's worth noticing, it's worth pointing out that these verses make it plain that it's, it's not enough to know God's law. It's not a matter of knowing God's law. You have to keep it. That being said, let's turn our attention now to Psalm, or verse 89 through 96, and, and see more of this picture that he's painting of God's glorious word. He says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Looking at this stanza, we would joyfully agree with and affirm what the psalmist is saying, what King David is saying, that God's word doesn't change and it doesn't fail. It's permanent. What works now will work tomorrow because everything is under the rule and authority of God. And while other good things have their limits, the word of God is infinite. It covers everything. And throughout these 176 verses, right, we've just looked at 16 of them. David is singing his praises of God's law. He calls it a source of life, a source of strength. 
a source of wisdom, a very well-known verse. It is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. So as David is praising God's word, he, he asks for things like understanding. He asks God to teach him so that he may learn God's rules and meditate on them. He remembers the Lord and does not forget his statute. All of those activities, understanding, teaching, learning, meditating, remembering, forgetting, those are all words related to our minds, to processing information, thinking through things. And these are just the things that we are looking for when we want to stop some undesirable, some sinful behavior. What does God's word say on contentment? Or pride, or gossip, or anger, or alcohol, or lust, or work ethic. We open our Bibles and we cry out, help me understand God. And in those times of searching, in those times of crying out for help, we are following right in the footsteps of King David, a man after God's own heart. We absolutely need to know what God has taught, what God has required, if we're going to seek him, if we're going to walk in his paths. But then... Having learned, discovered, understood God's laws, we might find ourselves running back into that invisible wall. The wall that stands between what we know and what we do. And it needs to come down. David ran into that wall in his own life, most notably in his sins against Uriah and Bathsheba. And surely he committed other sins throughout his life where the God he knew and the law he knew We're pushed to the back of his mind. That being said, we can be confident that David did not always struggle with committing to what he knew to be true. There are more than a few examples in Psalm 119 of the kinds of actions that David took in response to the commandments of God. And yes, we are going to go through all 176 verses, and I pulled out examples of him doing things. So I'm going to rattle them off. In verse 15, David fixes his eyes on God's ways. In verse 18... He asks for his eyes to be open. In verse 31, he clings to God's testimonies. In 37, he turns his eyes from worthless things. In 45, he walks in a wide place. In 48, he lifts up his hands toward God's commandments. In 51, he doesn't turn away from the law. In 53, hot indignation seizes him. In verse 54, he sings God's statutes. In 59, he turns his feet to keep God's testimonies. In 62, he wakes up at midnight to praise God. In verse 67, he keeps God's word. In 101, he holds back his feet from evil. In verse 120, his flesh trembles in fear of God's judgments. In 131, he opens his mouth and pants in longing for God's commandments. In 136, he sheds tears Because people do not keep God's law. In 147, he rises before dawn to cry for help. In 148, he wakes up in the middle of the night to meditate on God's promises. And then wrapping it up in 171, his lips pour forth praise. And in 172, his tongue sings of his word. What is it that enabled David to wake up in the middle of the night to meditate on God's promises? What held his feet back from evil? What broke the wall between what he knew, that God's law is a blessing, and what he did? That's the help we need 
We don't need to know how to get more information. There has never been more information available to us than there is today. We need to know how to get what we know into what we do. And Psalm 119 is full of knowing God's word and doing it. Fortunately, lurking in the background of Psalm 119 is the wrecking ball capable of knocking down that barrier. And it isn't beating answers into your brain. We're going to look at Psalm 132 and jump around a little, or 132, Psalm 119, verse 32, and look at a few others to see if we can see this theme developing. It says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Verse 10 and 11, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. uh, I will not forget your word. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And then in uh, verse 69 and 70, the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. David's mind was bound to God's word, not because he knew it, not because the information had been dumped into his brain, but because he loved it. David's heart was consumed by God's law. He delighted in it. He saw it with his whole heart. The wrecking ball that tears down the wall between what you know and what you do is simply what you love. You do what you love. And this is why sin is so terrible. The problem isn't that you don't know the right thing. The problem is that you love the wrong thing. You've been made for God to love him and to worship him. And anything less will ruin you. St. Augustine, uh, the third most influential Christian behind Jesus and Paul, probably, in North Africa in 8300, wrote this. And you may have heard it before. It's St. Augustine. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. To make sense of any of this, it's important that we understand what St. Augustine and, more importantly, the Bible means when they talk about the heart. For us, the heart is symbolic of our emotions, which is separate from our minds. We feel with our hearts and we think with our heads. And so we might consider the heart and the mind as co-pilots of our souls. But that's not the way the authors of the Bible look at those things. In the Bible, the things we associate with the mind are swallowed up in the heart. The heart is a whole kit and caboodle. It's everything. According to the Bible, you are your heart. This doesn't mean we ditch our thoughts and our minds and focus only on our emotions. We don't carry our own definition of heart back into the Bible and then try and make sense of it. We let the Bible define its words and then we use those definitions to understand it on its own terms. So our understanding of ourselves, of people, it needs to expand to fit the biblical model, not shrink. When we read about the heart in the Bible, we need to realize that it's not simply referring to your feelings or your emotions or that that thing in your chest that makes you feel passionate towards certain things. Instead, we need to understand that more than that, including that, but so much more than that, when the Bible is talking about your heart, it's talking about your mind, it's talking about your will, it's talking about you. Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen puts it like this. It says, as in water, 
face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Your life is a mirror image of your heart. If you want to know your heart, examine your life. Your daily life and habits will reveal your heart. And in in other words, your daily habits, your daily life, it will reveal to you what you truly love. And you are pulled by what you love. If you love money, you'll be pulled by money. If you love attention, you'll be pulled by attention. If you love family, you'll be pulled by family. If you love God, your heart will be pulled by God. This is the truth underlying Jesus' message in Matthew 6.21, where he says, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will be pulled by whatever it is you treasure. So we need to remember and, and this is especially important because it's not how we tend to think about these things. That your heart is not just your emotions and love isn't just a warm, fuzzy feeling. The Bible also says this in Proverbs 4.23, talking about the heart. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. The heart is important, not because your emotions are all that matters, but because love is a matter of the heart. And the heart is so much more than just your emotions. And this is why I've chosen to call my two sermons over the next two weeks, Good News for Your Gut. Your gut is that part of you that isn't exactly emotional. And it's not exactly intellectual. And those are the two things that we most often think about. Those are the two things we are most often concerned about changing when we are figuring out how we live. And so the gut and the role it plays in shaping you are easily overlooked. In fact, you might be laughing, thinking about a preacher talking about your gut. It might be absurd to you. But there's a place in the scriptures for this idea. In Matthew 5, 6, the Beatitudes, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of all places, says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Is that your heart? Is it your mind? No, it's your stomach. It's your stomach. See, the the stomach is hungry. You don't tell it to be hungry. It craves things all on its own. You cannot keep it from craving, from longing, for desiring. You will get hungry, and you will need to feed that hunger. But you can shape your hunger. You can change what you desire and crave when we're talking about food. You can make yourself like fruits and vegetables. You can teach yourself to think sugary sweets and desserts are disgusting. You are more than just your emotions and your intellect. There's a craving that happens in your soul similar to what happens with our gut without you even thinking about it. And that craving in your soul can be made to long for, to desire, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen to Jesus' words in John 6, uh, 46, and then 50, 50, or 35 and 51. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What I'm suggesting this morning and intend to flesh out in more detail next week, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for your gut. Yes, it's good news for your mind. It's brilliant and deep and full of wonder. In fact, a few months ago, 
I preached an entire sermon about knowing God and how we are all theologians and we just have to choose whether we're going to be careful theologians or careless ones. Certainly our minds matter. And yes, the gospel is good news for your heart. God is love. You are loved. In spite of your sins, Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross to offer you eternal life. The blessings that should have been his for his blameless life are mine and are yours by faith, not not by works. The creator of the cosmos, the creator of the universe, adopts us as his children. He is strong when you are weak. He is your fortress and your shield. These are beautiful truths that ought to stir our emotions. But if we are going to live the Christian life, we need to understand that there is a gut-level gospel that David knew well as he wrote and sang Psalm 119. And it's not a different gospel. It's just the gospel of the kingdom of heaven ruled by a king on a cross applied to all of you, including that part we often forget about. It begins with believing, along with Jesus, this is my father's world, that everything serves him. That God can use and is using everything in your life, not just formal teaching, not just Christian radio or books or Sunday sermons, to make you more like Christ. That God's word has something for your whole being, your whole person, your whole heart, which includes your heart, your mind, and your gut. That part of God's plan for your sanctification, for making you more like him, is to train your gut to hunger and thirst for him. These aren't thoughts you think, they aren't emotions you feel, but they are absolutely a part of you, a part of what the Bible would call your heart. And the good news of Jesus Christ reaches there too. Godly living comes from your gut, not just your heart and mind. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come here and read your word um, and teach from your word and proclaim your word. Lord, I pray that uh, this message would begin to take roots and, um, and, and shape and change how we look at things, God, that we would realize that our habits, whether it's checking our phone first thing in the morning or um, whatever it might be, God, that all these different things are playing into the kinds of people we are, that we aren't just thinking things and we're not just feeling things but you've made us as complete and complex creatures who move through this world in in a unique way to give you glory Um, Lord I just pray that that hopefully this message will encourage myself and my own sanctification that you would work through it uh, in me and in the lives of the people here that uh, we would begin to see maybe a gap that wasn't visible before, that we begin to see uh, an obstacle that maybe we hadn't noticed before, that there are things making a difference in our lives besides just what we think or what we, what we see and what we hear and know, um, but that you want to train our guts to hunger and thirst for you. Lord, I just pray as we wrap things up here, as we get ready to leave, that we as a community of your people would love one another well and would shine as lights uh, in a dark world around us. And that people, uh, similarly to what King David wrote in Psalm 119, would turn to us and, and sing your praises because they see your light shining through us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.